Pushkin. Legacy of Speed is executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. It's late morning, October 18th, 1968, in Mexico City's Olympic Village. The third member of the magnificent Speed City trio, Lee Evans, is in his room when he hears the news. It really hit me like a big slap in the face. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who raised their fists in protest on the victory stand two days earlier, are being sent home, banished, disgraced. Evans recalled what happened next. I came downstairs. At least 50 or 60 uh, photographers and news people or radio or television were waiting for me to come downstairs. (laughs) I didn't know that. The reporters pressed Evans. He was the clear favorite, the top-ranked 400-meter runner in the world for the past two years. And the 400-meter final was that afternoon. What was he going to do? Would he defy the U.S. Olympic team's stern warning against further protests and raise his fist during the national anthem like Smith and Carlos had? Would he quit? The biggest race of his life, the moment he'd been training for for years, was just hours away. And here was mayhem. I kind of lost it. I became outraged. He stood there, surrounded by reporters, when it became clear he was facing an impossible choice. Would he stand in solidarity with his teammates or go ahead with the plan to run? The pressure got to him, and he grabbed a nearby U.S. Olympic official. And I was just angry. So I had one U.S.C. guy by the collar, and I had my, my fist back. Lee Evans was about to punch a U.S. team manager in front of a bunch of reporters. I mean, I'm talking arm-cocked, eyes wild. Bud Winter was nearby. He broke through the crowd to reach Evans just in time. Bud runs up and grabs me. He hustles me out of there. You know, I'm tears running down my face. and I'm just distraught. Outside on the sidewalk, Evans collapsed into Bud's arms. The year-long boycott movement, the gold medals he was expected to win, the protest he was expected to stage, the pressure was too much. Bud looked at his star sprinter and said, Lee, in five hours, you will have to run the race of your life. Right now, you couldn't run around the corner for a loaf of bread. We've got to get you out of here. I told Bud I wasn't going to run. My name is Malcolm Gladwell, and from Pushkin Industries, Tracksmith, and Puma, this is Legacy of Speed, a story about athletes who dared to take a stand and the visionaries who made them fast enough and brave enough to change the world. The last chapter of our story is about what happened after John Carlos and Tommy Smith's lonely protest on the 200-meter victory stand, the ripples that continue to be felt even today, and the tidal wave that nearly swept away their friend and teammate, Lee Evans. Bud Winter's first challenge at the Mexico City Games was helping Tommy Smith overcome a potentially devastating injury and go on to win the 200 meters. But the Lee Evans situation was far more critical. This was a full breakdown. 
In footage of that moment outside the hotel in Mexico City, you can see Bud and Evans trying to escape the press mob. Bud looks like a beefy security detail. He's wearing a Team USA windbreaker and steers Lee Evans through the cameras and tape recorders. In his book, Relax and Win, Bud wrote about looking for an escape route. We came to the bus assigned to the Japanese team. Pushing Lee ahead of me, I climbed aboard and slammed the door. The reporters encircled the bus and stuck their microphones through the open windows. Look, I told the Japanese bus driver, I'm a good friend of Mikio Oda. Oda was the Japanese coach. Please go and tell him Bud Winter has big trouble here. Need to get away from this crowd. Hurry, please. The driver got the okay. As the bus pulled away, Bud put his arm around Evans. They drove around the block and used the back entrance to sneak up to Evans' room. Now here is what we're going to do, Bud said. I'm going to have your meals sent up to your room. Keep the door locked. Talk to no one, particularly reporters. We're going through the relaxation routine we have done so many times at the university. It will loosen you up. It was the same routine Bud had developed for Navy fighter pilots. Close your eyes, relax your face, loose hands, loose jaw, just like the mantra he used on the track. Relax your body, neck, then arms, then chest, then legs. Picture yourself lying in a canoe, staring up at the clouds. In three minutes, Lee Evans was asleep. The worry lines erased from his forehead. The next thing I know, I woke up and he was gone and about two or three hours had passed. I was like, whoa, what happened, you know? I was really peaceful. I wasn't angry anymore. I was very peaceful. I was able to focus only on the race itself. There was a knock on the door. It was Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They had a message for Evans before they flew home to San Jose. He had to go ahead. He couldn't drop out. You better run and you better win. You know, that's what they said, and they left. Tommy and John coming to my room freed me up. Without them saying it was okay to run, I, I felt like I was betraying them because they were kicked off the team. Evans began preparing for the race. He did visualization exercises and went into a meditative state. Are you talking to yourself? I'm going to run close to the line. My shoulder's going to be, you know, you're saying all the correct things uh, with your technique. Uh, my chest is going to be up. My knee's going to be up. My arm's going to be driving forward. Um, all these things I'm repeating to myself. Evans ran the race over and over again in his mind. I knew I, was, I would break the world record. So walking through the tunnel, walking out of the tunnel into the stadium, you're just wishing it was over. But the two minutes before standing there waiting for them to do what they're going to do, it's the worst time. And you, you don't train for that. On your mark, is still the worst time. But uh, staying focused and and the guy says, the, the starter says, on your mark, you're still very nervous. You know, you're down. But when he says set, I never forget that. I'm in Mexico City. He said set, I smiled. I really did. 
a smile come on my face. Yo, I'm ready to whoop these cats now, boy. When he says set, I'm so happy. Because that means the gun is coming next. Evans was in one of the outside lanes. His biggest competitor, fellow American Larry James, was on the inside. Rounding the final bend, Evans was trailing. But then, in the brutal home stretch where everyone dies a little death, Evans pulled away, effortless, relaxed, composed. He broke the tape, and at the finish, his upper body was loose, free. He gave Larry James a low five and looked up at the clock. 43.86 seconds. A new world record. A record that was to last for an astonishing two decades. It was Speed City's finest hour. And now he would be on the victory stand, at the top of the victory stand, and everyone watching had the same question. What would he do? He stepped onto the podium wearing a Black Panther-style beret. When he was presented with his gold medal, he raised a fist. He made his statement. But then, when the Star Spangled Banner played, Evans lowered his fist and removed his beret. He showed his anger, but stopped short of disrespecting his country. After the medal ceremony, he told reporters, I feel I won this gold medal for black people in the United States and black people all over the world. Two nights later, Evans was in the 4x400-meter relay. Lee Evans for America, way in front. They're 30, 40 yards in front. Kenya next, West Germany next. Evans was the anchor, the final runner. Nobody was going to beat Lee Evans. The result was another world record and another gold medal. And the second-place Kenyan team was so far behind that Evans could have walked across the finish line. At the medal ceremony, Lee Evans refused to shake an Olympic official's hand. Evans, Smith, and Carlos each found a way to defy Avery Brundage. They punctured the hypocrisy that was amateur sport, the delusion that somehow the world's greatest international sporting event could ignore what was happening in the world outside of the stadium. You might remember earlier in this series, I told you about the economist Albert O. Hirschman's take on the three available paths to rebellion. There's exit. You just leave a situation that isn't working for you. Loyalty, where you stay and keep quiet, secretly hoping for change. And voice. Voice is where you stay and speak up. Of the three available paths, the Speed City Runners chose the most difficult course, voice, to go to the games and make a public stand. But now they were faced with the consequences. What happens next? What do you do while waiting for the rest of the world to listen to what you have to say? Lee Evans wrestled with the decisions he made in Mexico City for the rest of his life. He told the writer Dave Zirin, I had a tough time because black people thought I didn't do enough 
and the whites were just mad. The black people thought I should have done nothing less than dynamite the victory stand. That's the only thing that would have satisfied them after Tommy and John. What else could I do? We'll be right back. Recently, I sat down with Tracksmith founder and CEO Matt Taylor to learn more about the brand and why they wanted to tell the story of Speed City through this oral history. I, like you, have been a runner my entire life. I love it. I love the sport. Running is a part of who I am. Um, But I felt like there was so much more that could be done in terms of how the sport is presented and how it makes people feel. And so I started Tracksmith in 2014 to make people fall in love with running. So the the project, the Bud Winter Speed City project, where did that come from? The image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the podium in Mexico City with their gloved fists raised in the air. It has to be one of the most recognizable photos of our generation. But a photo only captures a moment in time, right? It's like a snapshot with no commentary. And as, as powerful as an image that was as a track and field athlete and a fan of the sport, I always wanted to know more. And so as I got to learn more about that story, there were really two parts that felt extremely compelling to me. One was, how did this tiny school in California produce so many world-class athletes? San Jose State was not an athletics powerhouse, but in the 1968 Olympics, they, they won three gold medals and a bronze, which was amazing. And then two, the legacy of Speed City its sort of impact on the world as we see it today is not that well-known, both in terms of athletic performance, but also social justice. More than just incredible products, Tracksmith tells stories and creates experiences that make running more rewarding. This show is just one example. Learn more at tracksmith.com slash legacyofspeed and get 15% off your first purchase. As the Olympic Games continued in Mexico City, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and their wives flew home. At a layover in Los Angeles, reporters hounded them. After they landed in San Jose, Smith realized no one was at the airport to pick them up. You know, that really bothered me to a point that uh, our protection was zero. It was an early indicator of what the future would hold for the two sprinters. Little support and endless questions about the meaning of their protest. Here's John Carlos. They call me a troublemaker. That's a heavy word, a troublemaker. And you know who I found? I found Gandhi, a troublemaker. I found Martin Luther King, a troublemaker. I found Paul Robeson, a troublemaker. I found Nelson Mandela, a troublemaker. I found Jesus Christ, a troublemaker. John Collison, damn good company to be a troublemaker with those individuals because those are the true fighters for society. All of us was called troublemakers. The civil rights icon John Lewis used to talk about good trouble. They had all made good trouble, but it would take decades for the world to recognize that fact.
The years immediately following the 1968 Games were deeply difficult for Smith and Carlos. Their Olympic careers were over, yet the death threats and harassment continued. They each briefly played pro football, mostly riding the bench. Afterwards, they struggled to find work and support their families. Tommy Smith started coaching track in the 1970s, landing at a community college in Santa Monica. Carlos bounced from job to job well into the 1980s. He found his calling as a counselor at Palm Springs High School. Both of their marriages ended. Carlos's ex-wife later died by suicide. He attributes her death, in part, to the stress that followed Mexico City. He later wrote, I saw her beginning to unravel before my eyes, and it hurt because I knew I had brought this madness into my home. Smith didn't talk publicly about the protest until the 1990s. Then, in books and interviews, he and Carlos disputed each other's accounts of the protest and even the race itself. It created an icy silence between the former teammates. In 2005, 37 years after that day on the victory stand in Mexico City, things finally started to change. San Jose State erected a monument on a grassy quad in the middle of the campus. It's a large-scale rendering of that famous photograph of the Victory Stand protest. The fiberglass statues of Smith and Carlos raising their fists are 23 feet high and covered in dark blue ceramic tiles. The unveiling ceremony reunited Smith and Carlos with the Australian sprinter Peter Norman. He was the silver medalist, who had stood next to them on the victory stand in Mexico City, wearing an Olympic Project for Human Rights button on his track jacket. His last-minute decision had endeared him to Smith and Carlos. At the ceremony in San Jose, Norman returned the love in front of the crowd. Athletes work an entire lifetime for the privilege and the honour of standing on an Olympic dais. Why? To hear the adulation of the rest of the world. These two guys gave away that glory back in 1968. Pinning on that button cost Norman his career too. Because he violated Olympic protocol, the Australian team refused to bring him to the 1972 Olympics in Munich. When Sydney hosted the Olympics in 2000, Norman wasn't invited to attend. He still holds the Australian record, for the 200 meters. San Jose State University, you're giving them back that glory today, and I thank you for that. Eventually, Carlos and Smith put their differences aside. President Obama honored them in 2016. We're honored to have here the legendary Tommy Smith and John Carlos here today. Their their, their powerful, silent protest uh, in the 1968 Games was controversial, but it woke folks up and created greater opportunity uh, for those that followed. Today, Smith and Carlos are enshrined in the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. They've been inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. Last year, Tommy Smith received the Breakfast World's highest honor. He made the cover of a Wheaties box. 
But their journey from childhood poverty to gold medals, from political outcasts to belated heroes, may never have happened if it weren't for an unlikely pair at San Jose's Speed City, a fiery professor and a revolutionary coach. Bud Winter retired not long after the Mexico City Games in 1970. He continued to hold coaching clinics, and he wrote a book. He published Relax and Win, a cult classic that's part memoir, part pop psychology. Always an avid hunter, he submitted his wild game recipes to outdoor magazines. Sadly for us, a planned cookbook never materialized. The man whose mind for so many years, had been busy making sprinters faster, tried to slow down. He spent more time with his grown children. He also continued to travel, sometimes to visit his former athletes. Like Dennis Johnson, a sprinter who'd returned to his native Jamaica to build a program at the University of Technology in Kingston. On one visit, Johnson and Bud had dinner, then adjourned to a track, where Johnson was coaching young Jamaican sprinters. Johnson explained what he was doing, that it all came from Bud, that young Jamaicans learned what Bud had taught him in San Jose. Johnson died last year, but he told Ben Tucker, his old teammate, about Bud's trip. And he said Bud was so emotional. And he says he walked over to this wall, this very wall right here, and put his head on the wall and he wept. He cried, brother. Bud was so full of pride that I had brought his technique to Jamaica. He said, I will live on through you. Bud also visited Jamaica to give a lecture and hold a clinic. In attendance were two coaches who were transformed by what they learned. The two track clubs they founded ultimately produced a murderer's row of gold medalist world champion sprinters, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Asafa Powell, Johan Blake, and Usain Bolt. Dennis Johnson told the San Jose Mercury News, our sprinters look just like Bud would want them to look. The country is more or less saturated with the gospel of his style. Bud died on December 6th, 1985 one day before he was to be inducted into the National Track and Field Hall of Fame. At the induction ceremony, Bud's three kids read his acceptance speech to the crowd. Bud's daughter, Kathy, remembers what her father had planned to say. It was like, I don't know that I really deserve this. And it was very humble. He gave a lot of credit to the, to the guys why he was successful was because of them. And then there's Avery Brundage, Slavery Avery. His career ended where it began, in Germany. Black athletes from around the world threatened to boycott the 1972 Olympics in Munich over the apartheid-era Rhodesian team. The threat worked, Brundage was forced against his will to disinvite Rhodesia. Then came the darkest day in Olympic history, a terrorist attack that left 11 members of the Israeli national team dead. You know what Brundage said? 
the boycott threat and the murders were of a piece. Both, quote, savage attacks, quote, on the Olympic movement. I mean. The greater and the more important the Olympic Games become, the more they are open to commercial, political, and now criminal pressure. A day later, two more black American sprinters refused to stand at attention during the playing of the national anthem in the victory ceremony. This is four years after Smith and Carlos. Brundage banned them for life. After the Munich Games, Brundage retired and married a German princess. He died in 1975. His massive art collection was donated to San Francisco's Asian Art Museum. In 2020, the museum removed a bust of his likeness from public display and put it in storage. Politics, it turns out, cannot be kept out of the art world either. We'll be right back. Bud Winter was sometimes called the mayor of Speed City, and without its mayor, the track program at San Jose crumbled. The team was eliminated by university budget cuts in 1988. The only landmark that remained for the next few decades was the old oval track, named Bud Winterfield. It was a little scruffy, just like Bud himself. In 2019, it was demolished in the name of progress. This parking garage might be the site of the old Spartans track. We sent our producers on a mission to San Jose State to find the speed city of today. If this is the parking ramp that is the site of the former track, it'll have a silhouette, a silver silhouette of a sprinter on it that some people think is Lee Evans because of his afro. uh, Lee sported an afro during his career. And there it is. It's right above me. That's it. That's the only way you would know that this was the site of one of the most famous collegiate track and maybe just track programs in the world. But it's not over for Speed City. Not yet. The team is back with a new coach, Charles Ryan. My job here is to, from every angle, rebuild San Jose State Track and Field, rebuild Speed City to what it should be and to have the standing that it should have within our sport, which is a annual national level program, a program capable of winning championships. But for the man who has to fill Bud Winter's shoes, speed isn't everything. Probably the thing that for me is so formidable about the original Speed City is not, you know, how fast they ran. It it is the social activism. They had a platform and were brave enough to try to do something with it. Bud steered clear of the politics espoused by his Speed City athletes. Today, Coach Ryan is taking a different approach. I want the athletes to understand that as long as I'm in this seat, their voices will be valued, their voices will be heard. Use your platform in a positive way to go affect some change. Um, 
So for me, I think encouragement of that is vital. Um, And I think it's because our campus founded the idea of the activist athlete as, you know, the first African-American to be in the director's seat in this program. Uh, I wear that as a badge of honor. Um, I am standing, you know, on the shoulders of the legendary athletes that came through here, you know, your Lee Evans, your Tommy Smith, your John Carlos's, and so many others, Dr. Harry Edwards. I am here in this seat because of their work. And it's the honor of my life, and, and I plan to do it proud. And what about Dr. Harry Edwards? More than half a century after Mexico City, Harry Edwards is still advising young athletes who are speaking out. Remember Colin Kaepernick, the NFL quarterback who began taking a knee before San Francisco 49ers games? Like Smith and Carlos, he was black, he was protesting racial injustice, and he did it during the national anthem in front of the cameras. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refusing to stand during the national anthem again. Sound familiar? Edwards also found his way back to San Jose State University, the very school that terminated his teaching contract after the 1968 Games now partners with him. In 2017, Edwards' work inspired the founding of the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change. He's considered the father of sports sociology. That's Akila Carter-Francique. She's an African-American studies professor who heads up the Institute. What I appreciate about Dr. Edwards' work is that he really worked to make sure that we understood the full context of an issue, of a situation, of a movement, um, that it doesn't live in this sport bubble, but that other things are going on in society. Carter-Francique is teaching a new class called Race, Sport, Activism, and Social Movements, where she tells her students the story of the Olympic boycott movement and the 1968 Olympics. John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Lee Evans. They were really taken aback by the age and that they were the same age. (laughs) And I think they were really taken aback by the stark realities of, of racism. Today, more pro athletes and Olympians are speaking up than ever before. LeBron James, Steph Curry, um, Chris Paul, they're making great strides. And I think of our women athletes, because that's that's where my my heart is, right? (laughs) Naomi Osaka, you know, speaking to the notions of mental health and wellness. And seeing Simone Biles use her platform in that 2021 games to say, I, I, I can't do this. So they're really inspirational for the students that I work with um, to help them understand as well. Each and every one of us has an opportunity to use our platform to promote social change. Politics, race, money are all undeniably part of sports. Free agency in baseball, Title IX, and pay equity for women's soccer, NBA players warming up on the court in shirts emblazoned with the words, I can't breathe. In every moment when the world comes flooding into sports, remember, two fists in Mexico City helped open that door. 
We're not done yet. We took the Legacy of Speed show on the road to the 2022 World Athletics Championships, the Super Bowl of track and field. I'll talk with Tommy Smith and two other sprinters with a lot to say about 1968. Wyoming Tyus won two gold medals in Mexico City and staged her own protest at the Games. Also joining me on stage, one of the most familiar voices in track and field, NBC sports analyst and Olympic sprinter Otto Bolden. That's next time. Legacy of Speed is hosted by me, Malcolm Gladwell. It's executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. Our producers are Joel Meyer and Emily Rostek. The show is edited by Trisha Bobita and Karen Shakurji. And our mix engineer is Jake Gorski. Original music composed by Alexis Quadrado with trumpet by Lee Hogans. Fact-checking by Winton St. Clair. Our Pushkin EPs are Catherine Giraudot and Mia Lobel. Our development team is Lital Molod and Justine Lang. Thanks also to our executive team, Jacob Weisberg, John Schnars, Heather Fain, and Carly Migliori. Our marketing team, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Nicole Morano, Mary Beth Smith, Jordan McMillan, Isabel Navarez, and Sean Carney. And our operations team, Maya Koenig, Daniela Lacan, and Jake Flanagan. We had help with research and archival material from Yerla Hill, Kathy Winter, Tom Ratcliffe, John Stalkup, Brett Lyman, and Carly Lowe. Special thanks to Bud Winter Enterprises. Some audio in this episode was courtesy of the documentary film The Stand, How One Gesture Shook the World. Additional audio courtesy of the documentary film Salute. Legacy of Speed is a production of Pushkin Industries. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.